Hey, good to see you, scholar. Everyone give this dude a wave. Good to see you, man. It's really good to have you back. Hey, uh, I got a testimony. Uh, Friday night, uh, we're at youth group, and there's this one young man. He's, I don't know, 15 or 16 or something. He's been coming for a long time, but um, I, we didn't see him in term three, and he's got lots of things wrong with his body, and and so every time he comes to youth group, it's like, how you going, man? He's like, oh, I hurt this, and I've got this going on. And, you know, there's always something like that. He's, he's always hurt himself or he's got some long-term problem that he's seen the doctor about, and the doctor's told him something, and he needs to uh, get treatment for it or something. And I've wanted to pray for this kid for ages, but there hasn't really been an opportunity because there's always games running around and this and that. And, and uh, you know, he's very much in the group when things are happening, right or wrong. And... Uh, and we just had an extended time, uh, an extended free time the other night. Mitch just said, you know what, everyone's happy as is. Let's just leave them for a while and hang out with them. And you really got to use those opportunities. And, and I got to sit down with him and, and uh, I'm, I'm like, how you doing? And, you know, oh, this is going on and this is going on. And, you know, I've got uh, something going on with my eyes. And now he's always needed to wear glasses and, he, and he's had pretty poor eyesight. So... You know, if I was looking, if I was him and I was looking at Rodney's face, I would, I'd be able to see where Rodney's head is, but I wouldn't be able to see his face. And, and he, like he, so he can't see very far and he can't read without his glasses. And, and so he's got pretty poor eyesight. And so I said, okay, well, let's pray for that. And he's like, what are you talking about, man? Like he's worn glasses his whole life. I'm like, no, no, we're going to pray for it. And uh, I, I said, close your eyes. And so he closed his eyes. I put my fingers on his eyes and, and I started praying. And uh, I said, open your eyes. And he goes, oh, well, thank you. I said, oh, okay, let's test it. And so, and he's like, my peripherals are better. I didn't even know a man could get his peripherals better. But he, he said, my, I can see further now. I, it's like I've always had tunnel vision. I, I can just see wider, a wider field now. I was like, okay, that's good. And then we kept praying a few times and we kept testing and I kept standing far back. And he's like, okay, I can still see, I can see your face, Jamie. And he was blown away. And then I kept moving further and further back and we kept testing it. And then I start giving him things to read. And by the end of it, he was reading the fine print on the Coke can bottle and he was doing all sorts of stuff. And his eyes got better and he didn't need to wear his glasses anymore. And uh, let's give Jesus a round of applause. That's really good. That's really good. And uh, you know, like you don't need to put up with stuff just because you've been putting up with it your whole life and it's normal now. Just God is the God of healing, amen? But the reason I love healing so much is not just because you see something amazing happen in a person's body or, or he sets their mind free or something. It's because it's such a good opportunity to preach the gospel to them. You know, because you can argue with ideas. You can't argue with evidence, amen? And so I, I got to share the gospel with him afterwards in a way that he understood it because he you know he hears it in a, a corporate sense every week at youth group where, where everybody hears it and when we're reading from the scripture and stuff like that but when it's when it's just been handed to him in a way that really speaks to him and and, and the holy spirit goes bang he's like whoa and for the rest of the night because he's open to it now i get to start sharing testimonies with him of when god has done this or done that and like he's never heard any of this stuff before. he's like Wow, God really does do stuff. And by the end of the night, I was giving him a lift home. I was giving a few of the boys a lift home. And he said, you know what? I was at a youth conference when I was little, and I, I saw a bunch of people get healed, and I totally forgot about that. Oh, come on. And um, he did something really interesting that night. He kept putting his glasses back on. <laughs> <laughs> 
And every time he did, I made sure to pull him up every time. I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> and then goes about his business. He puts his glasses back on. What are you doing? Like, oh, I did it again, didn't I? Yeah, you did. And we're having a conversation at the end of the night. And he's like, and he's, he's doing this and he's doing this. And he's, do and he's like reading things. And he's like, that's so cool. <laughs> and, then, and then he... Uh, he said something that really struck me. He goes, yeah, I'll probably still need my glasses for reading. I said, why? I said, can you read fine without them now? He said, yeah. And I said, so what do you need your glasses for? And he goes, puts his glasses back down. I don't know. And I thought, wow, that's so interesting. He, he's not even a Christian yet, and he's, like, he's doing things that I've been doing as a Christian for 23 years keeps going back to things that God set him free from, and he doesn't even think about it. You know, my whole life, I have, uh, so I've been a Christian for 23 years. I'd say for at least two-thirds of that, and for goodness sake, I'm still learning, obviously. Uh, I've known how to do church things. I've known how to go to church, and I love going to church. I learned to go to church before I could walk. Okay, because I was dependent on other people to take me. I learned how to read my Bible as much as it was a struggle, but I persevered and I was able to start reading my Bible regularly. Uh, I learned how to pray, even though for many years I might just pray before I go to bed and basically apologize for all of my sins that I committed that day and, and say, help me to do better tomorrow. And then uh, I've learned how to serve on teams and I've learned how to stack the chairs when no one's looking. Or, or go and do the dishes or, or bring food out or something like that. I've learned how to, to do the things that tend, you tend to recognize a Christian by. But for many, many years, I, I didn't know how to be a disciple of Jesus. And it's like my mind was just so closed off to the gospel, even though I was a Christian. And because of that reason, when I was growing up in this church, I never heard the gospel preached from the pulpit, even though it was preached every single week. It just didn't click with me. So I never heard the gospel preached. And so one day, many years later, I was like 20. That's right. I was at mission school and someone said, how often does the gospel get preached at your church? And I was like, never. <laughs> never. It does. I've never heard it get preached. <laughs> Gosh, I was dense. And, uh, but I mean, when God opens up a concept to you that you haven't registered with before, you start seeing it everywhere, don't you? And so from that moment on, when God started to open my eyes to it, I started hearing it every week because I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the gospel right there. You start, start seeing it in, in Scripture all the time. And you're like, oh, that's so good. And whereas before, why does Paul keep saying these are yours in Christ and this in Christ and in Christ? Is that just a phrase that he uses like Queenslanders say a mate at the end of every sentence? Like, it's annoying. Stop saying that. Get to the good stuff, Paul. <laughs> you heard. <laughs> and then... And then God unlocks your brain. He, he gives you a revelation. He gives you a spiritual truth. And your mind understands it. And you're like, oh, thank you, Jesus, for Paul. He just gives the gospel in everything and he can't get away from it. And that's all I need. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I didn't know how to be a disciple for many years. And, and, and I really am still learning. And, and, and we were just talking earlier before the service about how much 
your upbringing can set you against the gospel because we te- we're used to living a certain way and and we good parents and well-meaning parents can still give us the opposite of the gospel in the way they treat us they don't mean to and we still end up as good people and we're still able to know Jesus and but we've got a lot of unlearning to do because of how we've approached the gospel because of what we've thought about what we've been through, whether those things were good or bad. So I've always struggled with being a disciple. And Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 was always one of my favorite scriptures when I was in high school. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That was always one of my favorite scriptures, but I didn't know how to apply that in my life. I didn't know that my problem was that I was trying to control everything and control my life because men have an extraordinary complex that we're the biggest, most dependable thing in the room and that everybody needs to depend on me and that I live life out of my own strength. And so I didn't know how to surrender my strength to Jesus. And so I'd only ever go to Jesus when I couldn't handle things anymore because I've got no petrol left in the tank. And I end up saying, Jesus, take it from me, give me peace. And I'd use Jesus as a Panadol instead of letting Jesus live through me every single day so that Christ is my lifestyle. Thank you. Like my issue my whole life has been control. I'm always trying to be in control and I don't know how to surrender. And I never knew how to surrender. And I feel like no one ever taught me, but I don't know if that's true because I wasn't open to the gospel. What a conundrum we human beings are. So I want to start a a scripture that sort of doesn't seem like it necessarily relates to discipleship. And it's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your work and your word. And Holy Spirit, that you live through us. You're so good. Lord, we ask you to speak today. Because it's you who live through us. It's not us who live. The life we live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. I thank you that we can live in surrender and we can live by faith and that we don't have to call the shots. And I don't want to call the shots today, God. I can't do anything apart from you. And I just pray you open all of our hearts and minister to us. You're so good and reveal yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, man, how good was worship this morning? 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to obey Christ. Weapons of our warfare. Keep your finger in this scripture. We're going to be hanging out there a little bit. Weapons of our warfare. What are the weapons of our warfare? I mean, there's there's more than one answer. I'm really only going to focus on two things today. But what are some weapons of our warfare? Can you just yell some things out at me? 
Word, the word. Faith, trust, peace, prayer. Oh, righteousness. Like, I mean, you could just go to Ephesians chapter 6, right? And read verses 10 to 18. That's a, that's a good passage on, on the armor of God and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You must have read your Bible. Okay, and I will be talking about that. I mean, I, I don't want to give any cookie-cut answers, but what does Scripture say about, I'm not going to go to Ephesians 6, although we could very well go there. I'm going to go to Revelation chapter 12. Verse 11, and they have conquered him, talking about the devil, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Okay, so they overcame the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Why is the blood so significant? Why is the blood of Jesus so significant? Sorry? Oh, you should get up here, I reckon. It's the fulfillment of the covenant. It's the foundation of our entire faith. It, okay, let's go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. Nineteen and twenty. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There's so many scriptures in here about the blood being the fulfillment of the covenant and the propitiation of our sins. The blood is the legal document that binds all of the work of God to us. From a human perspective, not all of the work of God has been done. We're actually about halfway through. Jesus came to earth. He lived. He died. Shed his blood. Took the wrath of God. Was buried. Proclaimed himself in Sheol. Rose from the dead ascended and is interceding at the right hand of God, but which is where he's doing that now. He, so he's interceding right now. He hasn't finished interceding for us. And one day he has yet to return for us. And then there's going to be a judgment. So that's still yet to be done. And there's going to be a union between the new heaven and the new earth, like it says in Revelation 21. So there's still things that need to be done. But from, so that's from humans, uh, humans' perspective. From God's perspective, he's already done everything, and this is just rolling out. God's work is finito. And the blood of Jesus gives us access to the completed work of God. Whether he has done it or he still has yet to do it, it has been delivered to us, signed, sealed, and delivered by the blood. So you have full access to the entire work of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now the entire work of God was expressed in Jesus Christ, in all of his work, all of God's heart, all of his purpose, everything he wanted to do for humanity, everything he wanted to display, Jesus has accomplished. 
with his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, intercession, and return. It's done. I have access to all of it by the blood. The blood is my, it's my binding document that says this belongs to you. You know, when you buy a house, you don't actually need to see it to know that it's yours. If it says it's yours on paper, it's yours. And sometimes we think God hasn't done something in our lives because we can't see it. Well, the blood says it's mine. Amen? So they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Now I want to talk about the word of our testimony for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. <clears throat> But you, everyone say I, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That sounds like the proclamation of a testimony of what Jesus has done, a proclamation of the work of Jesus Christ. A proclamation of faith comes from within. It comes from the heart. It's not just something that you talk absent-mindedly. It's not something that you theorize about. It's what has God done in your life. Not just what he's done and delivered you in this circumstance, although that's a good testimony. That's an example. But what has he also done in here? Because this is where it begins before it translates into the stuff that happens around us. A testimony is an evidence of the work of Christ brought into a local context so that people can take hold of it in a practical way. And so the blood lays the legal foundation for the work and then the testimony is the power of it. When you declare something from faith, it's powerful because it's something that God has done in you. And then... When you speak it, it'll happen in someone else. Experiential faith is really powerful. I think we should all be people that would want to see God do something new in our lives. You know, it's one thing for me to see someone else do something and go, that's awesome. Well, if God did that in their life, he can do it in my life. That's still good faith. That's faith. But how awesome is it when you just read it in Scripture? Like, well, I don't see it anywhere in a local context, but I'll tell you what, it says it in the Word, so it must be true, so let's do it, God. And then you do it. And then you're a pioneer of that faith, and God can give it to other people through you. We have a testimony. Reuben, come up here, please. <clears throat> Grab the mic at the desk. Reuben came up to me last week, and he shared me a, a story of something that... Uh, God was able to do through him that I thought was just really, really simple and easy but cool at the same time. So come and stand up here. <clears throat> um, so do you want to share with these guys what, uh, what you told me last week? Yeah, yeah. So I was actually I was talking to one of my mates from high school. I think we were on the way to the gym or something, and I was talking to him. And because he's been watching, watching um, a show, I think it was called Lucifer or something. He's, just, he's just gone okay. through, he's yeah, gone through on, a phase on Netflix or something. That. So he's gone through this phase where he's just watching that we're talking, he's talking about it and everything. And he's like, oh, so is that actually how it's like? I'm like, no, no, it's not. I've seen it and it's ridiculous, but no. Um, and I actually got to explain to him sort of 
how Christianity and the gospel works. And I said, I said to him, well, it's not like, you know, because he, he was under the impression that, you know, if you don't believe in God, he puts you in hell or he puts you in you know, mm. eternal suffering. And I said, don't look at it like that. And I said, because from the, basically, well, since the fall, we've already, humanity's direction was already death. Like we've, we put ourselves in that position. And so the only way out of that was Jesus. And I told him that, don't look at it as, you know, don't, um, like, don't look at it as, you know, God's going to put you there. Don't, like, look at it as, like, you're, we're putting ourselves there. And because if we, like, choose not to follow Christ, then technically God has no choice but to put us on the path we were already going to. Mm-hmm. And so something sort of, I could see, like, something sort of clicked in him, but he, I don't know if he was paying attention or not, but I could tell he was like, yeah, no, that's interesting, because no one's actually explained it to him before, and I thought it was cool that I got to share that with him, because mm. I've sort of been dwelling on it, on it for a bit as well, so, yeah. So, so, yeah, that was my next question. Like, was it, you know, sort of a, a spontaneous thing where the Holy Spirit just speaks through you, or was it something that you'd been mulling about with God beforehand? And- so, it was probably like a couple of weeks before I was sort of just, you know, dwelling on it in a bit, and a yeah. bit just sort of praying about it, and then, yeah, and then, you know, time came up and it was, re- it was really funny because I was like oh this would be good to talk to someone about and I thought he, I honestly thought it would be someone in the church that I ended up talking yeah, to about but it was yeah. crazy it was him or people but yeah, yeah right. it was good that I got to share with him and yeah that's really cool isn't it amazing how when you start walking through some of these truths with God and then he gives you an opportunity to share it with someone you know and and particularly a non-Christian like how awesome is that let's give this guy a round of applause you can take the mic back thanks man Cheers. You know, let's practice speaking the gospel. Let's, 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 let's chew on the gospel. Let's think about it all the time. You know, but um, Ruben, have, have you ever struggled with like a fear of sharing the gospel to people? 100%. And God just walked you into that. You, you could not have planned that conversation, could you? You know, you could probably, if you were really good and really successfully manipulative, you probably could have walked him into that and maybe he wouldn't have realized that you did it. Maybe you thought it was him opening up the conversation or something and you probably could have delivered that truth. But if God's not in it, that guy's heart isn't open. But as it is, Reuben started mulling over these things with God because God's put that curiosity there in the first place and, and started walking you through it. And, and then God's given him an opportunity by opening the heart of one of his friends to ask the question because your friend asked the question and you just responded. We, we don't need to try hard. God does all the work. Okay, the weapons of our warfare. So we've gone through the blood, we've gone through the word of our testimony. Just on that, you know, there's, there's always someone in our mind who we want to preach the gospel to. Our best thing to do is to start wondering about the gospel ourselves, not just about how to share it, and just say, God, give us an opportunity. The person's going to ask a question sooner or later. They're, they're going to be curious or they're going to look at your life and God's going to prompt them. Yet I'll get to more on that in a little bit. But what are, the, what are the weapons primarily used for? When we go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 
The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy what? Strongholds. Oh, wow, you've got it up there. You're a legend, says. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What's a stronghold? I remember Rick Warren saying, a lie that you believe. That's a stronghold. A stronghold isn't necessarily a demonic stronghold. The devil doesn't have any power in himself. He uses ideas. That's it. Okay? This passage does not say the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy the devil. It says destroy ideas, lies that we believe, lofty opinions that raise themselves against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive. The Bible never tells us to fight the devil. It tells us to resist the devil in plenty of places. It tells us to stand firm in plenty of places. It never tells us to go and, and make war against the devil. Why? I must be preaching to the converted. Oh. The devil has already lost. 1 John 3, 8 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil have been destroyed because Jesus' works were stronger and were delivered to you by the blood. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. I always wondered about that verse. How did the devil have the power of death? That's a really interesting thing to say. Death is the ultimate fruit of sin, right? And then there's everything in between, like sickness. And if sickness gets bad enough, we die. Death is the ultimate fruit of sin. And death, unfortunately, is something we've got to deal in this world with that has sin in it. Okay? And uh, as long as mankind was enslaved, or I'll say legally bound, because I'm loving all these legal terms because it gives me a better understanding of Christ's uh, work, as long as mankind was legally bound to sin, we could, uh, sorry, the devil could successfully oppress us and condemn us because we had an accusation worthy nature. So the devil's weapon was the law that he could use against us. And because we could never rise to meet the standard of the law, he always had a weapon to use against us. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Is that Colossians 2, 13 and 14? Can someone read out the next verse for me? 
Who's got it? Go for it, John. Hallelujah, that's just so good, we're going to have to read it again. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So the devil's not dead, he's just been disarmed and defeated because he was using the law against us because we couldn't measure up to it. But Jesus measured up to the law because he, he is the law, he's the fulfillment of it. And when he shed his blood and died, he included us in on that fulfillment, that perfection. And so the devil and all of his accusatory ammunition just got taken away from me. He's got no weapon against us anymore. Amen? Let's all give Jesus a clap offering right now. Thank you, Jesus. You are so amazing, Lord. Thank you for your work in our lives. Hallelujah. So he, the work of Christ set us free from sin and in so doing destroyed the power of the devil. However, we still contend with strongholds, don't we? We still contend with lies that we believe and lofty opinions that set themselves up against the knowledge of Christ. So the devil can still bring these proud opinions or these falsehoods. He can still bring them. And if we're not equipped with the blood of Christ or our understanding and, 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 and the word of our testimony, if we're not equipped with the truth of the gospel, he can successfully use those opinions against us and cause us to live like we're still in slavery. So it's good to know the gospel, amen? But like the thing is... It, it, it's like we're not attuned to dealing with these sorts of idols that the devil brings because we're not really self-aware. Self-absorbed, yes. Self-aware, no. I think they're, they're two different things. So here's what I mean. Hardship happens. We all go through hardships, right? Or an injustice happens. Something happens to me that was totally not deserved. So it's understandable that I see that problem as the problem instead of me as the problem. Because it's like, this is a problem and I want it to be dealt with. It's not right. I get that. But God wants to use the problem to deal with the problem, which is me and the fact that I'm not completely submitted to the work of Christ. Question. Did Christ rise, sorry, did Christ die and rise to set me free from hardship and injustice to live an easier life? Or did he die primarily to set me free from sin and bring me into adoption as a child of God? So let's apply the same logic to the things that happen in our life. The problem that happens. Okay. It's good to ask myself the question, well, why did Jesus die and rise for me? Did he, die to set me? did he die and rise to set me free from this problem or did he die to set me free from my own issues? If I answer that question correctly, then I can approach this situation properly, right? 
I can look at me first and say, okay, Lord, what do you need to expose in me? What do you need to do at me, do in me? And where do I need to die to myself and live to you? What work do you need to accomplish in me? <clears throat> he just wants to free us from our own control. And when we're in control, or when we're trying to be in control and we don't let God be in control, we tend to pray controlling prayers. So most of my life, because I was always trying to be in control, I'd pray controlling prayers. Something had happened in my life that would make life hard, and I'd pray against that situation. There's nothing wrong with praying for all of this stuff, but, I mean, where's our priority at? Where, whose work is Christ for first? And, uh, and so I'd, I'd, I'd pray for God to fix that, but, but not to fix me. And, you know, so my life was chaotic, but my mind was a mess, so everything always seemed way more chaotic than it really was. He wants to fix the chaos in me. Because when he fixes the chaos in me, there's an anointing that's going to translate to that chaos. We'll talk about anointing in a moment. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's just, let's just knock over a few chapters. We'll start at verse 7. Hey, I think this is one of the most misinterpreted scriptures in the whole Bible. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. <laughs> Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you know how many Christians use this scripture as a justification to hang on to sickness? Myself included, I've done it. I remember one day Rodney pulled me up. We were praying for heaps of people and seeing lots of healings, remember, in Paraguay. And I was dealing with things in my body, and he goes, Jamie, you need to be healed of that. And I said, I think God needs to teach me some lessons first. And he went, and I thought, Eh, Rodney doesn't know my situation. But it's not scriptural. Didn't Jesus die to set us free from sickness? Why would he need it to teach us a lesson that only grace can give? By the way, grace is the work of Christ in you, changing you. That's what grace is. So many times I've pleaded with God to take things away from me, but he's saying, I actually just want you to be free of you. And when you're free of you, you'll be free of that. This passage isn't talking about sickness. It's talking about some kind of oppression that came into his life. But when you're talking about, when you read chapter 11, he's talk, the context of this is he's talking about all of his hardships, everything he went through, and the persecution of the Jewish people towards him. And then he finishes off the passage with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. 
He's not talking about sickness there at all. We don't get to use this verse as a justification to, ca- to hang on to sickness because Jesus died to set us free from it. That's a, misunder- that's a misappropriation of the grace of Christ that I should keep sickness so God can teach me a lesson. God wants to do a work in you and then outside of you. He still cares about the problems, but he cares about you primarily. And uh, the reason we tend to focus on that stuff instead of myself is generally because we don't think we're the problem. We think those things are the problem. But also, we just don't understand the power of anointing. We don't understand the power of the presence of God and that it's his work, not mine. I'm so busy trying to be in control of my whole life that I want everything to go according to my way so that I don't have to change. The reason I'm praying for that stuff to change is so that I don't have to. How backwards are we, eh? Anointing. Now, what's anointing? First of all, anointing is not the the aura of Jamie. It's not my essence. It's not... You're not special in that context. Leviticus 8.12 is an example of where consecration takes place. There's a, there's a good explanation for it in Deuteronomy 28.2, but uh, 28 as well, not 28.2. Uh, Leviticus 8.12 says, And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Anointing is about consecration. Consecration is being set apart, distinguished from the rest. That's how God describes holiness. It's set apart from the muck. You've been anointed by God. Why have you been anointed by God? Let me tell you why. I'm so glad you asked. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we know who repeated that in Luke 4, 18 and 19, don't we? Where he made friends with everybody during that sermon. The presence of the Lord comes upon those who are consecrated. Are you consecrated? Are you consecrated? Are you consecrated? Jesus was set apart and filled with the Holy Spirit and recognized as bearing the presence of God. And now by the work and blood of Jesus Christ, you too have been anointed. You too have been set apart and filled with the presence of God. So what's anointing really? It's how much of the glory of Christ that gets displayed through you. And I'm going to say that it's directly proportional to your level of surrender to God. Seriously, there's no substitute for holiness. There's no substitute for personal surrender. You want to preach the gospel effectively. You want to love your family well. You want to, you want to, um, you want to see abundance in your workplace. You surrender personally to God through Jesus Christ. 
and get to, get to understand the gospel and that the gospel has been given to you by the blood. Anointing is what brings victory instead of us trying to control things. It really is just the work of God. You know, it just comes to me now. I remember one time I went to go visit my friend Fitzy. Good old Fitzy. He was at this house on Harwood Road. They called it the Harwood King's House because it's just where all the stuff happened. And uh, I rode in there one Sunday night after church on my little dad's motorbike, that little 175 or something. And I pulled into the driveway. And Fitzy was there watching the show Supernatural. And when he heard the motorbike pull into the driveway, he heard these footsteps run out of the house and the back door slammed. And he's like, <laughs> I walked in the house and he's like, what happened? What are you talking about? And he told me what happened. And I said, it just gave me a good opportunity to say, why do you think that thing couldn't hang around when I got here? We had a great conversation about that, about the power of Jesus Christ. Another quick testimony about anointing and not taking control. Uh, my wife and I get along all the time. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. And uh, one morning I brought something up with her that it was a delicate topic, right? I had fear and trepidation for a week leading up. No, I'm kidding, I didn't. I'm kidding. And, and I started talking to her about this thing, and, and it was a sore topic for both of us, really. <clears throat> and, you know, it, it didn't float like an air balloon. It went down into the depths straight away. And she reacted, and I reacted against her, and she reacted, and I reacted, and I did not handle it well, and she didn't handle it well, and we just... And I'm like, okay. I, and I civilly walked out. I didn't slam the door or anything, and I went out into the backyard... And I started clearing away some weeds from the corner that we didn't end up putting our chook pen. And, um, and you know when you complain about your spouse or your friend or your son or this or that, and well, they said this, why can't they just understand God? And, you know, you do all those complaining prayers and, and unless you're all perfect and I'm just a, a dunce. And, uh, and, you know, I'm doing this stuff. I'm like, no. Thank you, Jesus, for my wife. I was still angry with her. But thank you, Jesus, for my wife. She's an amazing gift in my life. I thank you, Jesus, that you have saved and sanctified her. And I pray that you humble me and that you do an amazing work in my life because, God, I, I need to really grow up. And I just thank you that, you, you know, you've done an amazing work inside me too. And I thank you for our marriage. And, and oh, damn it, Hannah, I just can't believe you did that. No, thank you, Jesus, for my wife. And, and I'm going back and forth for like, half an hour, right? But, but, you know, sort of by the end of it, I'm, I'm sort of more in the thankfulness. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, yeah, my amazing wife. And, and Jesus, your work inside her. And I thank you that you've set her totally free and that, that you're doing such a good thing in us right now. And I thank you that this is going to be used for your glory. And I start doing that. My wife comes out, brings me food. <laughs> and, a, you know, a nice cold drink of water. I don't know, cordial with ice or something. I don't remember. And it was just really... She, you brought me salami, of all things, which was perfect. Good refreshment for a hard worker. And, uh, and she said, I'm sorry. And I said, I'm sorry. And then we sat down and we just had the best conversation where we were both able to open up. And, you know, it's, it was one of those real 
Holy Spirit conversations, right? Which I never could have orchestrated by waiting for Hannah to come out and I've planned everything I'm going to say. Or even just trying to just control the situation by just having all the right answers and just applying truth, but not really, even if I was being gentle, but just not submitting to God and, and not understanding that it's him who does all the things. It's, it's him who opens Hannah's heart and my heart. I, I can't do, I'm cactus. I can't do anything. I can try and be as smart as I want. It's not going to count for anything without the presence of God. And because I started thanking God, I didn't ask God to humble her. I asked him to humble me, even though she was the first one that reacted. (laughs) And you know what? There was just an amazing victory that day. And now I can share it as a testimony. Like, that's what happens when you pray and you humble yourself and, and you just relinquish control and say, Lord, I surrender and I just thank you that you're at work and, and that you know, you've saved us and you've done an amazing thing. Like People open up and, and you don't have to do anything. You can't orchestrate it. It's the anointing. It's the presence of God that is with you. We totally don't get the anointing of God. What's the time? I've just started. No, I will honor your time. I just, I just really want to, you know, I haven't really given you much practical application apart from thank God, which is the best practical application ever. How do you apply the work of God in your life without doing more? You know, the people came to Jesus in John chapter 6 and said, what must we do to do the work of God? And he said, the work of God is this, believe in the one whom the Father sent. Have you believed in the one whom the Father has sent? You fulfilled the work of God. Stop working. Stop trying. God's presence does it. And by the blood you have been given the work of Christ. And, and how do you translate the gospel into your life in a practical sense? Let's, I'm just going to throw out an example, and it's just going to be the most obvious example. Anxiety. Who's ever struggled with anxiety, right? Right. <laughs> What's anxiety? When you're experiencing anxiety, okay, like it's, it's fear. When you're experiencing it, don't say God solved the situation so that your anxiety can go away because guess what's going to happen? Your anxiety is going to come back when something else happens. You want the anxiety to go. I can't control my feelings. Not directly. You can indirectly control them. The question to ask yourself when you're experiencing anxiety is, why am I anxious? It's a good question. And you pray, Lord, why am I anxious? Now, I'm just going to give you the most blanket answer. It's because you're trying to be in control of the situation. Because it's happening outside of your control, you're getting anxious. That's just the most obvious answer. But the Holy Spirit may say something else. Okay, but for the sake of me just giving you an example, let's 
Let's just follow that path. Okay, I'm in control. The next question to ask is, well, I'm not in control. Why do I believe I'm in control? Well, because I believe God's not in control. <laughs> like, I think I can control the things in my life. Well, if I think that I'm in control, what do I think about God? It's good to ask yourself what you think about God. Trust me, God will tell you what you think of him. But he's not going to throw it in your face. He's gentle. Where there is sin, there is more grace. You never need to be afraid of insecurities in your life because they're defeated and God's always got more grace. Okay, God, what do I think about you? Wow, I don't think you're in control. I actually think you're kind of weak. Whoa, I know that's a lie. Now, here's where it really matters. Here's the next question you ask. How do I know from the work of Jesus Christ that that's not true? That God actually is in control. And that might be a good time to go to Scripture and go wherever the Holy Spirit leads you or just wherever you're up to that day. Or, and I'll just, you know, let's just say the, God gives you this example, and this is sort of the one I tend to throw out. Jesus was in surrender the whole time, wasn't he? Never did anything in his own control, not a single thing. He was always submitted to the Father through the Holy Spirit, and he went to the cross. And that looks pretty bad, doesn't it? That's a bad situation to not be in control of. It got worse. He died and was buried in a tomb. That looks as bad as it gets. But God was still 100% in control and he rose from the grave. That's how I know that God is always in charge. He's always sovereign because of the work of Jesus Christ that has been given to me through the blood. And then you can say, what do I believe about God now that I know that from Jesus? Oh, well, he's actually pretty big and pretty powerful. He's in charge. How do I feel about me? I'm certainly not. How do I feel about this situation then? It feels a lot better. Where's my anxiety? And at that stage, it should have lessened or it should just be gone. Now, it's important when you look at the work of Christ, so halfway through that whole process that I just led you through, it's good to realize what you've been doing and what you've been thinking and to realize what the work of Christ is and what the work of God is and then repent out loud. We're too busy trying to work hard to be a Christian, but we don't understand that once you see it with your eyes, hear it with your ears, understand with your heart and turn and God would heal us. How do you turn? Repent. Leave it in your heart. Confess with your mouth. Lord, I've been thinking this. I've been thinking that I'm in control and that you're not in control and I haven't been looking at Jesus and I've been experiencing anxiety and it's caused me to try and control my situations and I, therefore I reacted like that. And that, It's just good to realize what you've been doing, what you've been thinking. And Lord, I hand that to you right now because I know now that that's been nailed to the tree. So thank you. And you know what? I thank you, Jesus, for your work in my life and that, God, you really are in charge and that I don't need to be. And I thank you that you have shared your work with me and that it's been fulfilled in my life and that I don't need to be in control and that I'm just free to surrender to you and I'm not in charge of those situations. That's just repentance. 
Does it mean all your problems solve straight away? Maybe not. Sometimes you change like that, and sometimes God just needs to start rolling it out in your life. Sometimes repentance just opens the door for change to start occurring. Okay, but repentance is the is the it's like the the thing that opens the door because it's how Jesus operates. You've got to let go if if He's able to instill something in you. Does that make sense? Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your entire work. Your life, your death, your burial, your resurrection, your ascension into heaven, your interceding on our behalf. The fact that one day you're going to return, you're so faithful. Lord, we ask you to show us how to surrender, how to just relinquish control and let you be you. Lord, that the gospel would be applied in our lives because Jesus paid for it. Thank you for your amazing work that you love us. You're so good. Challenge us, God, and, and expose to us our, our lofty opinions. Expose to us any strongholds in our heart that we need to let go of. Anything that's at war with you, God, we don't want it. We just want you to live through us. We want to carry your presence everywhere we go. We want you to, to open up people's hearts. We just want to walk into conversations, God. We want to walk into places where you've just set the whole thing up and we just need to release you into the situation. Thank you that we get to... Bear your presence. What a privilege to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. We praise you and thank you for who you are and everything you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Fantastic. Well, God bless everybody. And I guess, you know, we've all got some thinking to do and, and some Bible to be reading and, and uh, some things to pray about. So that uh, concludes the service. But let's stick around and have a chat with someone. and. And, uh, you know, share a testimony as well. What's a testimony in your life? Bless you guys. Have an amazing afternoon.